Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history. It's Tuesday, the 19th of October, and my name is Alex Hochuli. I'm joined, as usual, by Philip Cunliffe and George Hoare. Guys, to start this off on a lighthearted note, have your energy bills been increasing? <laughs> yeah. Why, a, is that, why is that light? Yeah. Note. Why is that lighthearted? Having to pay more. Paying not all of us. Not all of us live in uh, like subtropical paradise, Alex. And therefore, you know, when we have winters, we do actually have to pay for um, for our flats. Well, I will tell you that the, that the energy prices have skyrocketed here, and it's a it's been it's a big issue. So I, I was wondering be, how it's going there in the UK. You have to be careful because this is just one step away from asking British people to talk about the weather. So this isn't an invitation to to talk about. Well, it's it's you know it's cloudy, so our solar plants aren't working, and therefore. Energy prices have gone up. No, my my energy prices have gone up, um, and I'm unfortunate enough to be exiting from one of these locked-in deals, um, and I'm now kind of you know at the mercy of all the um, fluctuating energy prices. Though obviously it's within the limits set by the national regulator here in the UK. I'm with um, EDF, which is an interesting part of this kind of energy story in the UK, because it is the big. French state power company, which has kind of bitten a huge chunk out of the British energy market as part of the effort to privatize, well, as a result of the privatization of British energy and utilities, they've ended up becoming um, dependent on the French state. And it's even been raised among French parliamentarians that they might use EDF or they might kind of try and squeeze the British energy supply as part of Brexit negotiations. Just to give a sense of the extent of the irrationality of privatizing energy that as trying to make and the national grid private you end up being dependent on another state's control mm-hmm. of your energy i mean yeah. it's just yeah. absurd. we have we have nationalized energy in the uk it's just the french <laughs> owned by france that's exactly it. That's it. yeah um but no that's great phil that you're 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 exiting and you're taking back control of your of your energy tariff and your energy prices so very happy to hear you you have energy sovereignty at least at the individual level now <laughs> so good for you that's really funny um i guess we, at least you're preempting what a more pro-european listener might say but thank you george anyway uh we're here to talk about what has become a big story and i think people are all around the world becoming aware of something and we're talking about one of the consequences of the pandemic and that is specifically the energy crisis. And I don't want to tie it directly just to the pandemic, but it's something which is one of the ensuing events from the pandemic, at least. So you, in the US, you've got uh, a coming energy crunch where the US government says it expects households to see their heating bills jump up as much as 54% compared to last winter. In Britain and the EU, uh, plants have shut down or, or will have to shut down specifically the Recently in the news, some fertilizer plants have had to shut down due to soaring natural gas prices. Uh, in Brazil, where I am, uh, drought has made hydro energy, and in Brazil, uh, hydro accounts for 75% of Brazil's energy mix. It's made it unfeasible, uh, and so the country is having to depend on small gas generators and gases, of course, rising here as well. Uh, and so there might even be the possibility of rationing, and who knows, even brownouts and blackouts. Uh, And really, this is around the world because India and China are also facing an energy crunch. Uh, Coal shortage is hitting both of them. Uh, Recently in the news, 80% of India's 135 coal-fired plants has less than eight days of supplies. More than 50% of the plants had less than three days of fuel left. Uh, And in China, I understand the uh, situation has been worsened by floods. So it does really seem to be a, a global energy crunch. But it's still caused by Brexit. That's important to remember, at least, <laughs> at least according to debate in the UK anyway. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> I mean, it's it's surprising how how widespread that that um, catastrophic event can be. But no, I think I think it's is, is it Brexit fault? I thought it was um, all all the climate, the climate deniers fault. Um, somehow that's the, the the logic. The climate deniers, it, the people who deny deny that there's climate. It's just it's just kind of stable everywhere the whole time. Yeah. Don't, no, then actually, we're going to start talking about the weather again. This is what you're trying to do, George. Drive us back to the weather. No, we're going to talk about energy, and we are going to bring on our guest in just a second. I spoke uh, just a couple of days ago to Emmett Penny, who's uh, the host of the Nuclear Barbarians podcast, co-host of Exhaust, uh, and writer and nuclear energy advocate. In fact, Phil and I uh, we're on exhaust separately uh, at recent points in the past year, and uh, it'll be very good to have Emmett back on. So here's me talking to Emmett. 
All right. So I'm here with uh, Emmett Penny. Very happy to be chatting to you and to be chatting to you again after uh, having been on your podcast. So it's good to uh, to return the the invite. How's it going? Great. It's good to be here, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So I think we're going to dive right in because we're going to talk about what people, I think, uh, even people who don't follow this stuff closely, is an energy crunch or energy crisis uh, seemingly around the world. Um, and I guess we're going to start with Europe, where I think you were just telling me before recording uh, seems to be particularly acute. So maybe just to start off, can you run us down what's behind this? I mean, is it just a shortage of gas? Is that what's behind it? Um, so that's part of it, obviously, right? The, the gas prices are insanely high. So I think I want to like walk through a few things that have happened over time that led us here, right? And that can help us understand what's going on. Climate initiatives have uh, throttled access to things like gas, coal plants have been shuttered, you know, all those things, right? Um, This is more energy dense stuff. And at the same time, there's been a rollout of intermittent, which is a very polite way to say unreliable, uh, renewables like wind, right? Well, that was all well and good as long as the gas stayed cheap and you could count on the wind to blow. We've seen a pretty uh, intense wind lull leading up into winter when uh, it's cold, so pressure's high and the wind isn't really there anyway. Um, People burnt through some of their reserves, uh, gas prices started to climb, there was not enough gas to go around, and now everybody's panicking because we're not even in the cold season yet. So that is the like real quick and dirty of what is happening in Europe. I should mention that a lot of these climate plans also involve shuttering nuclear plants, especially in Germany. I think their their best plant shuts off uh, on the 31st of December this year. They're going ahead with it anyway, despite the fact that they are burning a shitload of coal right now to go through it. And just to give people like an insight into how extreme this gas thing is, like I know that you have a lot of UK and European listenership. Uh, I think the Dutch basically were just like, yeah, we're not producing ammonia anymore right now because we need the gas for other things. That's going to like redound to agriculture in Europe, right? Like that's, we used fertilizer and things like that to get away from being extremely weather dependent for agriculture. The, TLDR on everything that's happening is that the energy transition worked, but not in the direction people thought it was going. We were going to have more emissions coming out of the grid, and we're going to have more fossil fuel, and we're going to be more uh, dependent on the weather gods. Whatever they might do, who fucking knows? So we'll get into the ins and outs and the rights and wrongs of that transition and how it's happened and how the energy mix has shifted, I guess, over the over the recent years. But most immediately, what's caused this rise in gas prices? I mean, obviously, in Europe, it's led to a lot of kind of saber rattling against Russia, thinking that it's, you know, Putin's holding on to his gas and he's not he's not sharing it with us. Um, but I think obviously you can dismiss that pretty pretty quickly, um, or at least, you know, put it down to kind of standard geopolitics. um, It's definitely standard geopolitics. I mean, like, this is a great advertisement for Nord Stream 2. Yeah, which is (laughs) for for people who don't know is the big pipeline coming from Russia into into Germany. Yeah. These shortages, like, what I mean, what's what's prompted this rise in gas prices, because it seems to be part of a wider package of supply side problems since the pandemic. I mean, listeners might want to check out our episode mm-hmm. with Adam Tooze if you haven't heard that yet, where he kind of walks us through what's behind that. But there's things going on well beyond just uh, the supply of gas to Europe uh, in terms of shortages on, and on the supply side, whether it's semiconductors or backed up shipping mm-hmm. and or whatnot. Yeah, so a few things. Okay, so if we take a look at the UK, uh, we can get some insights on here. There was a um, like gas storage plant or something just off the coast called Rough, and that got closed recently. So a lot of backup supply went with it. And the idea was, well, we're resilient enough, we'll get through. Also, the way that the UK grid is structured is actually what the California and Texas grids in America are based on as a market framework. Um, and the way that works is it's a big auction house where people bid in every five to 15 minutes to provide electricity to the grid rather than having a centralized, you know, monopoly, regulated monopoly or state run electricity thing. 
Um, so what does that have to do with the gas uh, shortage? Well, the thing is, is that having those short timeframes makes it really hard. There are no incentives. There are very few incentives to like plan ahead because you're just like, well, the market will solve it. Right. The price signals will solve it. It'll be all right. It basically goes from treating energy and electricity as a service to treating it like a commodity. Mm-hmm. Right. So, and I mean, in America, we actually have like laws in these regional transmission organizations. That's sort of this market framework for a grid uh, against like naming that backup fuel. You're just not allowed to do that here because that scene is cheating, right? Reliability is cheating. You're supposed right. to bid in right when you're supposed to, you know what I mean? <laughs> Whoever can have like the, and what it's supposed to do is the idea was right. That that would drive down costs for consumers. I mean, that really hasn't happened. Um, but that's what's going on, right? If you have intermittent renewables, you need something to step up. That's going to be natural gas. If you have low eyes um, and you don't have any, let's say, native gas production, you're going to be heavily reliant on imports, right? Uh, Meredith Angwin, uh, who covers stuff on the grid, she's a great writer, wrote a book on the U.S. electricity grid called Shorting the Grid, calls this the fatal trifecta. And it is when you become vulnerable to an overbuilding of unreliable renewables, just-in-time natural gas, and imports from out of your location, right? right? So that's what happens. So we can sort of see what happens when everybody starts importing at once, or there's been a wind lull, everybody has lots of renewables now, and they all need gas. Nobody has enough storage. Nobody has enough anything. And now they're just like, I mean you're just like looking for anything you can dump into a turbine to get it to fire. Right. You know? Um, so that's part of it. And at the same time, if you have climate stuff, that's like, we're not going to build more gas pipelines because, uh, or selectively, or you're going to winnow that down because you're worried about climate or you're going to shut down coal or you're going to shut down nuclear, which is clean. Um, then you're going to lose a lot of that backup capacity too, because the grid needs to stay. Well, at Europe, in America, it's 60 Hertz. I think in Europe, it's 50. It needs to stay there in order for alternating current, to be transmittable, right? That's the right. whole equilibrium of the grid. So that's what's going on there, right? And like people will do whatever it takes to keep the lights on. They will pay pretty much any price you can think of, right? Yeah. Um, and so that's what's driving it. Now, if we take a look at Germany, so Germany's closed some nuclear plants, right? And so now they're more reliant on fossil fuels to back up their big renewables project. Uh, that's becoming a tale as old as time right now. Um, but what does that really look like for Germany? So one, Germany has a lot of national coal, right? The other thing is they can uh, import liquid natural gas. So if you, listener, you can go Google what that looks like. It basically looks like an enormous skyscraper tipped on its side with a bunch of seed pods of natural gas on it. Uh, one of those is one twentieth of what you'd get out of a nuclear plant per year, basically. Right? Yeah. So that makes you extremely vulnerable to, let's say, I don't know, maybe a major canal getting blocked. Not that that's happened recently. <laughs> um, you know, uh, never, or, ever, ever. Yeah. Um, or through the, uh, I think it's the Strait of Hormuz through Iran, if they get upset about something and want to shut that off. You're vulnerable to that. You're vulnerable to all sorts of things that you weren't vulnerable to before because of this. And it has also made the price of stuff go up, right? Okay, so if we look at China, I mean, look, man, the world is power hungry, right? People are adding terawatts just like per year, right? So you're yeah. going to have to increase generation to match it. Um China needs that too. They're running into a shock. They misallocated a bunch of capital. Uh, they have one grid, which services 1.1 billion people. And now it's running into problems. And so the thing is like, what do you think they're going to do? Do you think they're going to care about how much things cost elsewhere? Or are they going to care about feeding the grid with as much coal as they can possibly get? Right. I can tell you, if you look at the polysilicon prices for uh, creating solar panels right now, they're skyrocketing and solar investors are freaking out. Right. And so, I mean, there's obviously, I mean, I was, you know, researching for this kind of listening to some in one of these talking head programs about uh, energy 
particularly in, in Germany, but across Europe. And always the sort of green representative, whoever that might be, is, is the, the line is always just, we need to go faster and harder into renewables. And that's what, <laughs> yeah, that's what we down. need to do. Um, and I mean, I can see kind of the understanding of it. If we exclude this whole question, which you've already alluded to, that the world needs to produce and consume more energy, that's just something that is going to happen, um, or at least that the consequences of not doing that are pretty damaging, right? It's like, mm-hmm. and, and even if we want to, and we'll get into onto this a little bit later on, but even philosophically, it seems that, you know, the more energy you produce and consume, that is kind of goes in line with civilization. If you want to, if you can yeah. quantify civilization, it seems to be a good, a good way to do it, right? Yeah. Thermodynamically um, is a good way to quantify it. Yeah. 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 Um, and what is the, I guess some people might be saying yes, but we just, even if you're, um, you know, creating efficiencies and whatever, so you're maybe reducing consumption a bit, um, you know, we should try to do that. And if you just had a complete build out of uh, renewables at a much faster speed, why wouldn't that resolve the problem, right? Okay, would... that's a, uh, yeah, okay, fair question. Like, like taking, uh, on their, taking on their ambition, because I think, and we're going to come on to this as well, a question about ambition and what whatnot, but, you know, the Greens, like to just use a, a kind of general label, right? The Greens uh, are all, you know, are talking about big ambitious things. And that sounds good, you know, after a long time of not talking about any ambitious yeah. things. Cool. Well, what's wrong with that ambition then? Yeah. Again, so I was talking about how it needs to stay at 50 or 60 hertz to operate, right? That's just what the grid needs. Um, if you have too much stuff, it gets out of whack. If you have too little, it gets out of whack. It's all about equilibrium. Okay. So. What is the problem with saying we just need to double down and go harder and faster with renewables? First of all, like I said, they're unreliable, they're intermittent. Let me give you a picture of that, right? So I noticed that a lot of DSA people were saying, you know, Texas, the blackouts that happened there prove that we need more renewables and that fossil fuels are unreliable because one of the things that happened was the gas pipelines froze and they couldn't source that energy to feed the grid. Okay, here's the problem with that. There were days during that blackout period when from Houston, Texas to Haverhill, Massachusetts, like half the United States, there wasn't a single wind turbine spinning in that entire locale. If you had 80% renewables, by the way, that was winter. It's cloudy, right? What are you getting? Yeah. 80, yeah, nothing, nothing. Nothing. That's the problem with it. And so what's going to rise to meet that to keep the grid humming, right? That's the problem. People think that what they're doing is decarbonization. What they're really doing is degrowth, right? Like these things aren't supposed to power industrial society at this scale. That's what's dangerous about it. It makes it volatile. You know, I don't think people fully understand, and maybe we'll get to this later, the extent to which these like green NGOs are like fully neoliberal. If you look into some of their ideas about like how energy should run, it is like all about price signals and shit. Well, let, let, let's know. get let's get into that now. Yeah. Actually, I, yeah. I was going to come to it later, but why don't you go ahead? Like, well, because I think most people, yeah, I guess the default assumption is that they're in favor of yeah state build out of you know a bunch of wind turbines and whatever. Maybe not realizing exactly how the how the stuff kind of behind that goes in terms of uh, procurement and supply and whatnot. Right. So um, right now, there's like a big fight going on behind the scenes in. FERC, the Federal, I think, Electricity Regulatory Commission Committee, the major body in the U.S. that decides these things or oversees these things about what to do about this quote-unquote energy transition. Um, Former FERC heads wrote to the current one saying like, hey, you know, these neoliberalized markets, right, these wholesale markets, that's what they'll call them, the type I just described closer to the top of the episode, these auction house uh, ideas of how we should run our electricity system. Renewables get are 80% in America rolled out in these areas. So if we want more renewables so Biden can decarbonize, we need more wholesale markets. We should create more of them because they can accommodate renewables better. Why is that? Well, that's because of the market framework. It really benefits the energy traders and stuff like that because it's volatile 
right? right? And it has natural gas and stuff. So it creates a bunch of secondary markets on top of it, right? They're not doing this because they're like cynical and like mean or whatever. Like the Natural Resources Defense Council basically agrees with this type of idea. Amory Lovins uh, over at the Rocky Mountain Institute who uh, helped devise the Energiewende in Germany agrees with this idea by and large, right? Mm. And so renewables advocates who are listening to this who are on the left might say, well, what if we made it public, right? What if, like, wouldn't that solve the problem? It's like, well, no, you're still going to have the generation problem that it proposes. And I'm going to get to batteries in one second here. Um, you're still going to have that problem. And in fact, there's even less of an incentive to build these things in a public arena because they just don't produce that much. It's sort of what I call Bryce's Law. This is my friend Robert Bryce, author of A Question of Power. People should check that book out. It's on electricity. Um, and the way he says it is the lower your energy density, the higher your resource intensity. So in other words, the less energy you produce, the less power you produce, the more resources you're going to need to provide. We can see that in land use with renewables, right? We can see that in all sorts of these things. So this all starts to create a lot of problems for the American grid, right, with reliability. First of all, you have these land grabs, which upset local communities. There's something like 317 communities in America that are fighting big wind right now um, for their build outs because they think it ruins their small town. They're not reactionaries. Um, I would recommend talking to these people if you can or reaching out to them uh, to hear what they have to say about it. Um, and you're also creating transmission problems, right? So one of the things Biden, the Department of Energy is doing in America is it says, well, to solve this problem, we need more transmission, right? And that makes sense. Look, we can suck up electricity from over here. You know, when right, right when the sun is shining in California and they have too much of it, they can send it on over to Illinois, where I'm from, right? Yeah, and I and think for people that. who don't really know about how this stuff works, like me, would assume that, like, yeah, why you've got power lines going everywhere? Just move it from place to place, right? That's tons of land use, and the other thing is, is like unless you bury them, which is cost prohibitive and makes them very hard to repair if anything does happen to them, like there are blackout problems and stuff all the time from power lines. It's just a difficult infrastructure to make. And there's a lot um, of loss friend, along the way as well, right? I mean- Yeah, you have line loss, you have all of this other stuff that, to add into it. And the other problem is, is like, then you create the expectation that everybody can import. Well, I've already described the incentives that happen, right, that make people or make people unable to have backup supply or whatever. And now you have a greater expectation that, oh, we can just import. It's going to lead to other types of energy austerity. In fact, that's already happening in California, which is just switched on where I live. Sorry, switched on five natural gas plants because it's grid is dying. Like, right, it's, it's freaking out under the load uh, because of its renewables build out um, and because of the fragility that that brings with it, right? It's got, I don't know, 25%, 30% renewables at this point. They sell power ahead of time to places like Arizona because it gets really fucking hot in Arizona, right? And California was just like, actually take backsies. Like that energy we sold mm -hmm. to you ahead of time for the summer, we're actually going to need that now. And Arizona is now thinking about like suing California <laughs> for doing this, right? right? So this is how it all plays out because the way these wholesale markets work aren't because they're meant to generate electricity. They're there to basically just be a market right? They're to sell commodities. But electricity is not like other commodities. First of all, it spoils in a microsecond, right? And it is like the firmament of modernity, right? Yeah. Like, ask anybody who's been through a blackout how much it fucking changes things, right? If you look at places that don't have a grid, one of the things they want is a grid. There's this great story um, I read an academic paper lately about somebody who did a big solar build out in India and all the locals ended up like shattering the solar panels and they were like, we want real energy, not this fake shit that only happens when the sun shines. Right. You know, um, so that's part of the problem. Look, like you, reason... you've, you've written, you've written one of the things and we're going to link to this in, in the show notes, but uh, something along the lines of, you know, the grid is like the most important bit of infrastructure you have. And I think people don't think about the grid or even necessarily understand what exactly it signifies other than a kind of integrated power system. But maybe you could explain why it's so important. Maybe this is a silly question, but you know, go ahead. No, it's a, it's not a silly question at all. Uh, I just want anybody, everybody who's listening to this today 
to think about what they did today without electricity. Try to create a list in your mind of the things you did today that did not require electricity. Yeah, that's right, people. No podcasts. No, not even, not <laughs> yeah, even, exactly. not even a little podcast. <laughs> not even a little podcast, right? So this is what we're talking about. Like, look, you know, so I have my own disagreements with David Harvey, but one of the things that he says in his lectures on capital that I like is that he asks students where their breakfast came from, right? And then you think back from there. Oh, I got the eggs from the grocery store. Well, the grocery store had to have them shipped there. They had to be grown from some there, right? You sort of walk the supply chain backwards, yeah. start to understand a little bit more about the nature of the commodity. Now I want you to think about how much electricity is involved with every single portion of that. Right? From the storage. And yeah. The no, it's, 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 a, it's a good to... exercise, but also one that's probably even harder to visualize than the exercise, than the kind of basic supply chain one, because you can kind of know more or less where food comes from and you can imagine, okay, there's processed here or such and such, but the, the power, you're like, well, there's a power plant and then it's just gets sent, <laughs> you know, distributed yeah, it, around the country. Right. Right. And it just gets sent. I mean, people shouldn't have to worry about electricity, right? Like, uh, if you live in a developed country, it should just be something you have. Uh, now we're in a place where you have to start thinking about it because it's increasingly fragile and look, anything you want. Okay. So let's put it this way. You're a lefty. Maybe you're an American lefty. Maybe you're in the DSA. Maybe you want healthcare for all. I want you to think about all of the infrastructure that goes into providing that medical care for people, everything, surgeries, x-rays, like, uh, fucking everything that processes uh, every bit of information that you need to get treated by a doctor, right? Down to the computer that puts your appointment on the calendar, right? Just think about all that. Now, imagine how possible that feels with sky-high energy costs, where there are rolling blackouts. Who do you think that's going to hurt the most? What political visions do you think will be rendered impossible by that? Probably yours. Yeah, I mean, so the shortage, it seems, you know, when you start thinking about it this way, and I think it's unless you are uh, some sort of uh, Malthusian or degrowth person, you know, I think the possibility of cheap, plentiful and reliable energy sounds like a good thing and something that would underpin so much else of kind of human life and, uh, you know, kind of social development that it seems like it becomes difficult to imagine why there is a resistance to this. And I guess we'll come on to the environmental arguments, um, but we should talk about nuclear because obviously you are a, a nuclear yeah. barbarian. I'm not sure what exactly yeah. that that means. You've got a great background. This is terrible for podcasting because people can't see it, but a, a great background involving kind of nuclear uh, stacks and uh, some sort of uh, Egyptian. So yeah, this is um, uh, my buddy uh, Sterling Bartlett, a comic book artist, did this for me. It is based off of the Palo Verde plant in Arizona and um, Iron Maiden's Power Slave album cover <laughs> um, so and he put pit That's, vipers yeah. on all of the statues i don't know why he did that but i love it um it's so cool uh so i'm really grateful to him for that uh no. so yeah nuclear so, so i mean so it seems like such an open goal right so i think we'd like maybe should just go through the arguments because um I, when i think about political you know it's, it's it's a hard thing it's a complicated thing coming up with you know concise clear political demands that really are incisive and are on the one hand realistic and yet at the same time ambitious and unrealistic right and mm -hmm. nuclear just seems to be one of those where you're like well that just seems almost too obvious you know what i mean like it's not it, yeah it, it almost feels like it demands too little political thinking so you, i i start even questioning myself going surely there's something else to this why <laughs> you know there's few things in politics that seem such an open goal uh, as as a, a demand for nuclear, so maybe talk us through uh, why it's such an open goal, or you know, or or maybe are you overlooking something? Yeah, no. Uh, well, okay. So the thing that nuclear makes easy is all the tech stuff, like you just said, right? So let me sum up what I was saying about the the grid and why nuclear is good for that, and just this idea, this ranking, this hierarchy of needs, right? So if you want electricity in your society. It needs to be reliable, 
and then affordable, and then as a treat, low emissions, right? Because it's a developed world problem, right? Developed countries create the most carbon. They have the ability to reduce it through nuclear, we hope, right? Because uh, nuclear is really energy dense. Um, that means you get a lot out of it for a little bit of uranium, right? Uh, it is low emissions. Uh, they have closed the fuel cycle on it. The Russians have created a fast breeder reactor, which can refire spent nuclear fuel, which is amazing. That extends the mm. life cycle of it. It's not yet commercially viable, right? But they can do it. By the way, Russia has the best nuclear program in the world. That Rosatom is the best. I love them. I envy them. I bow to them. They're outstanding at what they do. It is amazing that they recovered their nuclear program after the 90s. And I have bottomless respect for what they have been able to pull off globally with their nuclear production. Okay. So if this seems so obvious- but, well, Maybe right? just interrupt, what, what has worked well about Russia? I mean, why have they managed to do this in a way in, in at a time when most other developed countries have been pulling away from nuclear or if they even had much of a nuclear program in the first place? Um, God, yeah. So you can, if you want to deep dive into Rosatom, um, my friend Mark Nelson over on the podcast Decouple did an episode where he walks through the history of that in pretty fine detail. And it's worth uh, listening to. But the thing that Russia seems to still be interested in is, uh, I think this is past path dependency from the Soviet era, is having big state entities that do things. Yeah. Right, like one of the complaints people have about nuclear is that it's too expensive, and they're right. It is expensive. It is uh, an expensive way to make cheap electricity. Renewables are a cheap way to make electricity expensive. Right. Yeah. That's the way we can think about it. The way that uh, Rosatom gets around that or works through that problem is the same way France did in their build out in the seventies, and it's they standardize reactor types and they make a shitload of them. They make them domestically and they export them, right? Like something like 80% of the nuclear plants being built, uh, the reactors being built all over the world right now are like built by Rosatom, right? right? And that's because nuclear does not benefit from innovation. It benefits from experience. It is an economy of repetition, right? Because it's a complex engineering thing. So you need a state authority or some sort of like big regulated monopoly to choose one reactor type, maybe two, if we're talking about small modular reactors where we need them, which don't totally exist yet, but whatever, we're not going to get into that, right? That can come up with a single reactor type that it wants to churn out. That has been one of the major problems is trying to create new reactor types. I mean, at this point, what I'm saying is that the technology of the 50s worked and we don't really need to innovate it too much and we should just use it, right? Yeah. And I mean, so two things there. One, obviously, is that people would obviously point to the, the accidents that have happened uh, with that old technology. Um, you know, I, my understanding is that it's been much improved, but people will inevitably think about sort of uh, how to deal with the waste which is still obviously a problem. Um, and then it's a problem that needs to be balanced against the other downsides of other uh, energy sources. Maybe let's deal with that first before we come on to, uh, I guess, right. the, the more political question about the need for, well, to not dip your toe into nuclear, you have to kind of go for it. Right, exactly. Yeah, you're not just doing a little, you get in for a penny, in for a pound, right? Okay, so let's talk about the problems, right? People bring up generally three. They want to talk about Three Mile Island. Um, nobody died. No one was hurt through radiation. Um, that whole situation was safely handled. And they want to talk about Chernobyl. Chernobyl happened because of, I believe, an unauthorized experiment in the reactor core. So that like area around the reactor core was exposed, and that's what allowed it to sort of meltdown outwards. They don't build them like that anymore, by the way. And the other thing to remember is that the other stuff kept running there, right? Um, I should also say that uh, in Ukraine, nuclear has an 83% public approval rating. Yeah. Which is that's, important that's, that's to good, remember. Yeah. 
right? Um, like they like it there, even though that's where Chernobyl happened, right? And the other thing is people, so um, I think her name is Geraldine Thomas. Uh, she works for the WHO. She runs the tissue bank around Chernobyl, right? Um, thyroid cancer was the major scare. We're lucky that that is the most treatable thyroid cancer. And uh, it's just been revealed that uh, none of the descendants of people who are at Chernobyl will have that cancer passed down to them. So that's really good, right? Um, and the death count was like relatively small. I can't recall the last number. It's a tragedy that it happened, obviously. I'd prefer that it not, but that's what we're dealing with. Okay. Now, let's talk about Fukushima, right? That is everybody's favorite to talk about because it's one of the most recent and it sort of stopped what was a nuclear renaissance in the 2010s dead in its tracks. Yeah, that's, so, a, good, that's a good point. And it's actually worth people maybe looking at the charts of what happened in Germany, for example, because it's pretty stark and in, and in Japan as well. Oh, it, yeah. Japan. By the way, Japan also just decided to re, restart all of its nuke plants. It like wound them down and then 10 years later, it was just like, God, we're burning a shitload of coal and there's no way out of this. <laughs> right. Yeah, let's just start these bad boys back up. You know? um, and yeah, it had cascading, um, you know, it like people made all sorts of decisions based off of that um, around the world. Uh, and the other thing that happened at the same time was the natural gas revolution in the US, which made solving for the intermittency problem of renewables much, much easier. And right? and less and, and less emissions heavy than if they had had to rely on coal, for example. On coal, so. exactly, exactly. Like natural gas is um, emissions-wise way, way better. I mean, like what uh, Rosatom is to nuclear, the American gas industry is to natural gas. Like this is America. All we think about is eating pussy and fucking fracking. <laughs> like the, the, to borrow from the comedian Shane Gillis. That is that is my country, right? We're really good at it. My dad lives out in Alpine, Texas. You have to land in the Midland Airport. The, and then the gas bit, not the not the other bit. I think. Well, anyway, yeah, just yeah. Go, just go, go go on. Yeah, fair to middling on the other stuff, I assume. Um, <laughs> And uh, and you land in the Midland Airport and you drive for three hours. It is nothing but gas infrastructure. It really opens your eyes to how deep it is in Texas and in America. Okay, so that's sort of what happens. Now let's get back to Fukushima. People forget that there's like an earthquake and a tsunami at the same time. Yeah, right? pretty big deal uh, there. Yeah. Pretty big deal. Um, look, no one dies from radiation there. It is not heavily irradiated. The one person that died in the plant drowned, actually. The people who did die, the death count that you see has to do with the fact that for some reason, uh, don't do this, by the way, if you're ever in charge of this, uh, they were worried about a potential meltdown fallout, fallout event and evacuated a bunch of hospitals and stuff during the earthquake and tsunami so not only would that expose you to more fallout if you did that it led to all sorts of other problems that made people expire in transit which is really really tragic right now if you're like but i saw this heat map of the pacific ocean and all of this radiation spewing into that uh what about that Okay, that's a map. That's a heat map from NOAA, which is an oceanography organization. And that was them looking at the wave patterns that the tsunami created. Nothing oh, to do so with this nuclear. Is, this is, I haven't seen this myself, but I guess it's something that was uh, fairly widely shared around. Y yes, that, it is yeah. one of the most famous images. It's it's totally debunked. And then so, the other I mean, famous on, image... On Fukushima is that like the... The argument is that obviously it was placed right in a, in a very hazardous place, which wouldn't be the case necessarily everywhere else. I mean, obviously, Japan uh, is no. Is... It's that they made they also made some mistakes, right? They also like didn't build up the walls enough. Um, there were some problems there, right? Like they made mistakes. This is, by the way, comparatively safer than like any fossil fuel incident that's happened I mean, the there's last, a like, thing, 20 years. Th and there's a thing that we should maybe go on to talk about, about the evaluation of risk. And there's a whole question around this, around COVID as well, that we're mm -hmm. generally, I think, publicly quite poor at evaluating risk or very easily uh, suckered into anybody who talks up a lot of risk about this one thing. And that 
basically we shut off kind of evaluating it in relation to other things right um mm -hmm. and it kind of like a little bit like that with nuclear as well because for all that especially environmentalists will talk about the dangers of coal right um or and indeed of climate change as a whole then suddenly uh the risks of nuclear get blown up out of proportion to that to these other risks which are supposedly the big the really big risks right but so one of those risks that are often talked about um is the question of nuclear waste. And that is often, I think, mm -hmm. my understanding is that it's often treated in a way which is precautionary, um, but on the basis that, well, look, we didn't know what we were doing when we started burning a bunch of coal to keep our to keep ourselves warm or to give us energy. Um, with nuclear, if we start doing this, we're just going to create problems for, for ourselves down the, down the road. And so we shouldn't do that. Right. So the difference for that is waste from coal is stored in our air. High-level yeah. nuclear waste is stored in a dry cask uh, on-site at the plants that is monitored by the utility and the people who work at the plant, right? Um, if you're in America or maybe if you're in a European country that has nuclear, I don't know how you guys do it uh, over there, or you're somewhere else in the world. I also don't know how you do it. But in America, you can go to your nuclear plant and ask for a tour. And I highly recommend you do it. And you ask them all sorts of questions about the uh, about the waste because they'll have them for you. And it stayed sorefully, uh, safely on site. Now, people will point to this boondoggle in America called Yucca Mountain, which was supposed to store all of the nation's waste. And uh, you can imagine what happened. All sorts of crazy risk assessment stuff happened. By the way, like environmental groups have succeeded in making the regulatory burden so high for creating nuclear in America that it's basically criminalized. Like you have to have meltdown proof fucking bike racks. I shit you not in these things. <laughs> Who gives a fuck, right? <laughs> like that's yeah. crazy. Yeah, you that's don't have obviously... that. You don't have that approach to other things in life where you you know you take right. all that like, risk. That burden is obviously way too high and doesn't make any sense to me. But anyway, so that's sort of what happens with Yucca Mountain. It's been this whole boondoggle. Nothing happens. If you're really worried about that waste in America, you could send it to Los Alamos in New Mexico where they process all sorts of like uh, radiation waste and stuff like that. And they have tons of space for it. Look, all of those dry casks of high-level waste in America since the 50s, the entire time we've had nuclear that it has existed, stacked twice high fit on a soccer pitch. Yeah, that's that's not that big. That's, uh... That is not that big at all, right? And then I would like you to go Google what happens to wind turbines when they get taken apart. They just end up blanketing landfills and their life because cycle is obviously much shorter as well much shorter um look when green groups cite like how long solar or wind lasts they're usually actually literally just quoting the warranty from companies not actually like studying how long this shit lasts so you have to look at that with a grain of salt um but look that's what happens with the waste uh, and it's perfectly contained. It's safe. I think the Netherlands has my favorite storage thing. They just have one big storage building. They like plop it into these little cylindrical holes in the floor. And they have just, it's like a painting gallery. They literally just have huge murals all over it. So it's just forklifts, casks, and amazing murals. It is a solvable problem. No one has died from nuclear waste ever. Uh, from civilian nuclear, that is. Um, and... It is the best waste we could have because, like I said, not only is it easy to store, is that in the future we could potentially reuse it and making it even greener than it already is. Yeah. No, that, I mean, with all that in mind, I mean, what is the biggest impediment to nuclear? Because now there's maybe, and we were talking about this before, maybe the, the winds are, <laughs> to like maybe choose a bad metaphor, but like the winds are, <laughs> the winds are changing. Uh, the, uh, in France and then also 10 mostly Eastern European uh, EU states have started uh, or want to get a nuclear labeled as green. Um, so it does seem to, which are all countries with a, with a, with a fairly substantial nuclear buildup. Yeah. I mean, I guess maybe. Yeah. And Germany something. doesn't want that is, yeah. uh, that is a big fight that's happening right now. Right. So, um, and France is like, don't come across the fucking Rhine and tell us what is and is not green. Thank you. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but, but the, but, the, but the, the reality of it is, is that there's obviously an impediment and that's obviously the cost. And so it seems to be hit from two sides, right? That you have environmentalists. Uh, who, let's say, a, a large section of which are still resistant to nuclear or feel that it's a too easy of a get-out clause um, to to uh, which will allow people to 
get off the hook for not building out renewables or cutting consumption. Um, mm-hmm. And then on the other hand, um, the sort of, well, dependence on, on market mechanisms for doing absolutely anything. And which of yeah. these do you think is more fundamental in terms of God, stopping it's, it's It's really hard to pick, right? Because the thing is, at least this is the case in America where we have a huge like nonprofit industrial complex over here. Um, these people are dug in like ticks to the government. Um, they have nine digit budgets. They're not accountable to anyone. They decide a lot of this stuff. And if you think that I'm doing some conspiracy, this is often a critique of my work that I overplay their hand. People should realize that the NRDC, which just successfully shut down the Indian Point plant before its time in New York, and New York's electricity got 46% dirtier. That project was started under the tenure of someone at NRDC, Gina McCarthy, who is now the first ever climate advisor to the White House and the Biden administration. Right? Like the NRDC, by the way, does not show up when there's a big ethyl cracking plant build out in Minneapolis or not in Minneapolis, I think in Minnesota, they don't bother with that. They're there to shut down nuclear. Like that's what they care about. So yes, they are major players. Yes. They have a lot of influence, but look like these markets don't, these wholesale markets don't benefit nuclear at all. Right? Like it, it means they require more subsidies or whatever than you'd like. Usually it's nothing compared to what wind and solar get, which basically uh, the turbines only spin when the subsidies are flowing. Um, And people don't like that. (laughs) Um, So I think there's some serious market reform that needs to happen. I think some are really coming because it's clear that the RTO experiment is really, was an innovation on a process that didn't need to be fixed. Can you tell us what that is? Yeah, so that's the, that's the, deregulated auction house thing I was talking about before. That's how the UK looks. I think that's parts of how other parts of how Europe look. That's how Texas works. Huge parts of the US basically are in that sort of RTO framework, right? Um, Those are an impediment because uh, it doesn't reward steady baseload power, right? Yeah. As I was discussing before, the volatility isn't there. You can't be playing the the casino on that, so. Yeah, right, exactly. Like, that's fucking boring. Who cares, right? Um, That is not like Gordon Gecko psychopath shit, um, you know, with high volatility that you need to make a bunch of money with as an energy trader. Um, And it's not good for running a utility. So it punishes um, baseload power, not just like in terms of its ability to provide for the grid, but physically as well, right? Here's an example. I got in an argument with um, an American lefty over this idea in New York State that they are going to do a huge public power thing that's going to be basically all renewables. And the legislative pairing is creating, this is public now, this isn't private, that's fine. But then the thing that they want to do with it is slate nuclear as a fossil fuel, believe it or not. Isn't that crazy? Um, But... I was like, first of all, this is fucking dangerous because you have three other plants there that provide you with clean baseload. I was like, also, it makes you really vulnerable. You're going to need a shitload of gas to do that. And I was like, and look, even with gas, with can ramp up, but especially with coal, a study came out through Power Magazine. They reported on a study that the fucking components of those baseload plants are getting worn out by that RTO structure because they are even they are being forced to ramp up and down. And this person said, yeah, old power is defe- getting defeated by new power. And I was like, I don't think you understand what the fuck is happening here because that is really fucking dangerous, right? You're inviting even more risk, right? The Texas blackouts killed like 700 people. I think that's one of the lower estimates, by the way. That is like more people than died at Chernobyl, right? Yeah. Like, this is how we need to start think about so, this risk in so, a system-wide So to, so to way. turn about the, the, the politics of it, I guess, the the what is holding back nuclear, I think, you know, it's obviously this being wedded to market mechanism as well as uh, actual political advocacy on behalf by, by and environmentalists and, and, and lack of state capacity. Now, if there is a possibility of more kind of reshoring happening, for example, in, in the US, and that there might be industrialist interests pushing for uh, more cheap fuel, I mean, is that is that something that's going to change the configuration and the balance of forces, at least in, as concerns uh, energy production? Um, God, I hope so, right? Um, I mean, look, the reshoring thing is difficult. I think it should be done personally, just so people know where I stand. 
like I think we really need to rethink both uh, industry and energy in America. I think COVID was a real check on the whole. It doesn't matter whether you make microchips or potato chips idea of globalization. Yeah. Um, and I also think uh, that we can't do whatever the fuck we want with our energy system and expect it to deliver, right? We can't just turn it into a market and then cross our fingers because luck isn't a plan. I think these things can be wed together. I don't know who wants to do that. Right. I know people on the right in America who want to do that, by the way, because yeah. the right in America is totally fine with nuclear. They don't necessarily like the big state capacity you need to build it out, though. But that's the question. Yeah. And so, as you know, and the follow on from this is who are you making your argument? I mean, not to necessarily put you on the spot, but presuming that you would assume that, you know, other people who feel the same about nuclear, who would you who should you be making your arguments too, right? Um, and not just in the US, I, you know, probably a, across the West, this would apply equally. Are you making it to the left to then, because if you see the left is the only one able to wield an argument in favor of big projects, that therefore the left needs to be won over to nuclear? Or are you like, well, it doesn't really matter, make the argument wherever it'll go? I'm So I'm a like, generally, a, wherever it'll go, um, a certain part of the American right tends to like me, and it's the industrialist reshoring start part, yeah. the sort of like American affairs type that isn't really scared of state projects. This is a very vital and new element in the right. Um, I don't know how much power they have, but they're definitely gaining some ground and gaining some legitimacy. Uh, so that's interesting. Look, the thing is with energy is that it should be like a valence issue, right? Like inflation goes up too high, people freak the fuck out. Okay, so you can't have that. Crime goes up too high, people freak the fuck out. Like, right? Like, no matter who you are, you kind of want to have your eye on that if you're mm. governing, right? Energy and electricity should be like that. It's not, but it should be. And I think this crisis is going to teach us why that is the case, right? So that's why I'm willing to make my argument to whomever. I just happen to be able to talk to the right more easily about it because the other thing is there are a lot more people on the right who aren't Malthusians. And I've also found out that there are, and this is sort of my whole gambit, that you can make cases for nuclear that don't have to do with the environment and they have to do with jobs. They have to do with clean air, which is good for humans to breathe. It's not just good for the environment, right? Um, and it has to do with, uh, I would say, sort of like a civic virtue of doing very big projects that these people seem to yeah. now have an appetite for. And I, I find that message compelling. It's sort of what I'm trying to do with my projects. But look, do I want to live in a world where there are fragments of the left, that there are a bunch of Democrats and there are a bunch of Republicans in America that all agree we need to do a big nuclear build out, whatever other fights we might have? Absolutely. Absolutely, I want to see that. Hello, listener. Alex here. Just to let you know that BungaCast will be live in New York this month. On the 19th of November, I'll be at the Verso Loft talking about the end of the end of history at an event co-hosted with Damage Magazine. Uh, we'll also be joined by two special guests and friends of the pod, writer and podcaster Amber Lee Frost and historian Adam Tews. Uh, all the usual info is in the show notes, but I hope to see you there if you're in that area. As for the rest of our interview with Emmett Penny, that's over at patreon.com slash bungacast. On there, Emmett and I delve a little bit more deeply into the contradictions of environmentalism, the politics behind nuclear power, and why people understand capitalist austerity as being quote-unquote socialist. Plus, the after party where Phil, George, and I discuss these issues a bit further. For all that, you'll have to subscribe. And once again, it's at patreon.com slash bungacast. See you there.